because the more entrepreneurial that a person can be, I think the more independent-minded they become, frankly, the more libertarian they become, the more self-sufficient. And so I think entrepreneurship is a good language with which to teach a bunch of other uh, skills that are going to benefit that kid and make sure that they thrive in the future. Hello and welcome to the Hannah Frankman podcast. I'm your host. And on today's episode, I'm speaking with Connor Boyack, the founder of Libertas Institute and the author of 40 books, including his most recent Mediocrity, a book about the 40 most important ways that the education system in America is failing our kids. In today's episode, we talk about the book, We talk about the ways that Connor is helping to empower parents to deliver an amazing education for their kids, both on the policy side of things and by creating resources like his Tuttle Twins books to help parents deliver an amazing education at the home, because that's where change starts. It doesn't start in a Capitol building. It starts in the home. It starts with our families. And Connor and I talk extensively about what good educational outcomes look like, what the most important things actually are to be teaching our kids, how to help them find their passion and their purpose, and how to set them up to thrive, and what that might look like in the 21st century in the era of school choice and ESAs and AI and all of the other crazy changes that are happening in the education landscape and the world at large. We had a lot of fun in this conversation, and I hope you enjoy. Connor, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I'm so excited I could catch you while you were in town. You're a busy guy right now. You caught me flying in and out. It's like fly fishing. Just got to grab it while you can. So excited (laughs) it worked out. You're here for what, like 24 hours? Uh, About 36. Yeah, I've had uh, back-to-back meetings. And then I'm going to speak at a homeschool conference in South Carolina after this. So this will cap three weeks of solid travel that I've been doing. So ready to go home and sleep in my own bed. Yeah, you must be ready for like a little mini hibernation. I, I need a vacation. Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> Three weeks of travel is exhausting, even when it's pleasure travel. Yeah, when it's, it's work true. travel, it's, it's true. a lot. Although for me, work is pleasure. So oh, you're one of those people. I, I am. I am a weird person like that. <laughs> I. It's the whole quote: uh, "If you love what you do, then you'll never work a day in your life." Type of thing, and that's certainly true for me. I. I get. I derive energy from this and I could do it all day long. I have to remind myself, I have a wife and kids that I need to pay attention to as well. <laughs> you say you're, you derive energy from this. What is this? Well, so what I do is I run a, a nonprofit called Libertas Institute, and we do a lot of legal political reform, changing laws, basically, but also public education to change hearts and minds to sustain those those legal reforms. So we're primarily headquartered in Utah, focus on state policy there, but now we work across the country. Um, and so that is a big part of what I do, but then also all these, you know, Tuttle Twins books, which we'll talk about and other efforts to actually teach the rising generation, teach whole families about the ideas of freedom, entrepreneurship, uh, the ideas of a, a free society. And so I just, I basically am a full-time freedom fighter and I've built a team around me to sustain me and being able to accomplish my goals and uh, being able to change the world one person at a time is a deeply fulfilling thing. I, I I tell my friends I'm a drug addict, but my drug of choice is not the stuff that Hunter Biden is using. It's uh, it's dopamine. I'm addicted to just getting those dopamine hits of like people saying thank you and hey, your work impacted my life. And um, and so if anyone's working in a job like that, it's not work. You would love what you do, being able to have something that meaningful. So I feel particularly grateful that I randomly kind of found myself into a career like this. I 
personally find that very relatable working in the education space, as I'm sure you can understand. I want to pause on this for a second, though, because this is actually very related to all the education stuff that we're going to get into in a second. Mm -hmm. You found stuff that you really love doing. And that's the ideal thing for an education to also be setting kids up for. And yet most people go through an entire lifetime and they never discover what these things are that make them light up and want to keep working all day. How did you figure out that this is what you wanted to do? Well, school certainly didn't help. Uh, If anything, it was a setback. Um, For me, it was somewhat happenstance. I, uh, through a series of events and networking with people and uh, volunteering with different organizations, um, I I found myself... um, I had a background in tech. I was actually a web developer, and that's what I used to do. But I I hated building websites for random companies whose products and services I didn't care about. But then I would work on some projects for, like, political things. And I'm like, oh, this is fun, where I can apply my talents to something that I actually find interesting. Uh, Funny, it's not a funny story, it's a tragic story, but uh, funny timing. 15 years ago today, the day that we're recording this on whatever today is, uh, March 29th, 15 years ago today is when my career got started in, in politics. It was, we're here in Texas, uh, here in Texas, it was the YFZ, uh, polygamous compound of the FLDS church where Warren Jeffs, very skeezy dude was allegedly, you know, preying on, on, uh, on people. And so the feds and the police all swooped in and they ripped 400 kids from their mom's uh, put them in the foster care system, which ain't all that great. Lots of drug abuse, sex abuse, and so forth. I was watching this on the news. I was just a web developer, a nobody. I was furious. Um, I I was so disgusted that the government, based on a legitimate concern, uh, though, could take a sledgehammer rather than a scalpel. Uh, these kids were not suspected of being involved in any abuse. It was just this concern of like, we got to get them all just to make sure. And I can understand that. Like, I want to have some kind of understanding and compassion. But for me, I was horrified that the government could do something this brazen. Uh, so I did an online petition that uh, got my first TV news interview. Local man, you know, does put in like, it was, it was weird. But that, that to me, I had all these people in this polygamous communities who were like, thank you for standing up and speaking out because they're like marginalized. No one cares about them. They're weird, you know. And here was a guy that had no connection to them, but I was willing to say, hey, that's wrong and we should do something different. So I didn't have like any profound impact, but it was my first uh, inkling 15 years ago today of, wow, I knew how to do this like online petition, which at the time was kind of new. No one was really doing that in 2007, but I could take my tech and marketing background and actually do something with it huh, how can I do that again? So it took me a few years to figure out how to sustainably like build an actual organization to, to do it. Um, I really wish younger, I, I, I regret that it took me so long to find my passion and be able to do this. I, I wonder about missed opportunity had I not, you know, had I been able to start earlier. Um, and so for me, with my kids in particular, I'm very passionate about helping them find their path as early as possible. How do you do that? Well, I think first it's a recognition that that path is going to have, you know, bobs and weaves and go all over the place. And so I need to be patient with the the process. For me, a big part of it is a lot of kind of job shadowing, apprenticeship type of things where I want to give my kids as much exposure as possible to different things with a low barrier to entry so that it's not like a serious commitment that they have to be a part of. Um, and you know, my kids are 14 and 12 right now. So we're just at that age where we're starting to give them that broader exposure to like, what might you want to do in the future? Um, but for me, I, I always try and think of it through the lens of what would young Connor who hated school have thrived the best in. And that's, that's where I first start trying to think like, uh, how, how I would have benefited. And that's where we start with my kids. I love that. We're gonna, we'll put, we'll come back to your kids at some point. 
um, in this conversation. But I want to talk about your book, which is part of why I was very excited to have you on the podcast on this trip to Austin. Uh, you have a book that, what is the release date for the book? I don't actually know. Uh, April 26th. April 26th. I got one of those lucky advanced copies. You Thank indeed. you for that. <laughs> uh, and tore through it because it's fantastic. Thank you. Um, what was the intent of writing this book? You talk a little bit at the beginning about how you're trying to like kind of shock parents into the realization yeah. that all of these things, you can see all these horrors and atrocities in one place that the school system's committing yeah. that we kind of all intuitively know are sure. happening, but we don't necessarily see on paper. Um, but why, why this book and why now? So I do a lot of public speaking and one of the stories that I share, um, I'll be doing this at the homeschool conference in a couple of days. I share the story that, you know, recently there was this uh, group that got together trying to understand what is the state of schools in America today? Uh, how's education going? And they, uh, spent 18 months uh, going across the country, doing focus groups, uh, talking to teachers, uh, parents, students, and they write a report um, at the end in which they say, among other things, that uh, America is being threatened with a rising tide of mediocrity uh, that threatens to overwhelm America's foundations, and that if a foreign country wanted to impose on America the very mediocre performance we have today, we would have considered it an act of war as it stands, though we've done this to ourselves. So I share this whole story, and then I tell the crowd, I lied to you. I, I apologize. I misled you a little bit. This group did not recently form. This was back in 1983. This was during the Reagan administration. That's when they produced that report called A Nation at Risk. It was April 26th, 1983. So our book coming out April 26th, 2023, 40 years uh, to the day when that report came out. And so the book has 40 examples of how schools today are worse than mediocre. Because I always ask the audience, I'm like, okay, now that you know it was 1983, anyone want to raise their hands and say that things are better than they were in 1983 academically? And no one is ever courageous enough to raise their hand because there's a consensus of sort that uh, that things are worse. And so the point of the book is to, as you said, like there's this disparate knowledge out there. You see a social media post, you hear about it on the news, bad thing here, bad thing there. But we basically wanted to take a machine gun approach where we could just, you know, like just overwhelm parents with the true state of what's happening uh, to kind of jolt them into action. What that action is, I'm, I care less about. What I care about is intentionality. So many parents just, oh, I went to public school and I turned out fine. You know, it's like, okay, <laughs> but what more could have happened had you, you know, done something different? And so a lot of parents are on autopilot. Uh, I think COVID had a massive silver lining of shaking a lot of parents up, but a lot have kind of gone back into their slumber and put their kids back into the, the matrix. And so the point here is to basically be the red pill to say, hey, time to do something different. And where you go from there is up to you. I've got lots of ideas of what I prefer and what I recommend, uh, but really we just, Parents aren't going to go pursue solutions until they really understand the nature of the problem. Are you truly completely solution agnostic for your readers? Do you have no preference at all for what they do after they read the book? Or do you have some opinion? I mean, in the book itself, we don't push a particular solution. So that's the approach that the book is taking. Me personally, as I said, I, I you know, I'm a, uh, we homeschooled our kids for the first decade and only recently put them into an acting academy. Uh, of all the different models that I've seen, uh, perhaps uh, Joe Lamont's uh, Alpha School, which is super interesting to me as well. Uh, but but Acton Academy is, is uh, gosh, I think the only institutional schooling that I've encountered that I would feel good about putting my kids in just because I, I see it as more institutional unschooling and peer-based learning and, you know, not having kind of the same structure and 
and standards. So, uh, so no, I'm a big homeschooling advocate. Um, and more than anything, I'm an advocate for, uh, so I wrote another book called passion driven education, basically letting, building a curriculum around kids interests, um, and finding, for example, you know, my kid is really into Pokemon right now. Well, great. Like, Hey, write me a persuasive essay about, you know, what's the best Pokemon or, Hey, let's do algebra. And instead of X or Y, let's use, you know, the acronyms of whatever Pokemon and, 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 um, you know, let's chart, let's learn Google spreadsheets and build a chart of all the different strengths and sizes of the Pokemon. And like I could, you know, I could teach them about business, you know, let's learn about the business behind Pokemon or e-commerce with Pokemon games, coding with Pokemon, you know, video games. So basically finding uh, opportunities to convey knowledge about something that the child is already curious about. When we talk to kids about algebra or about biology or about history, we're talking to them in a foreign language, right? Like they have to first learn the language of algebra to then understand algebra. But when you talk to kids in a language they already understand, for example, the language of Pokemon, it's just a lubricant that really accelerates learning because for my son, for example, anytime I mention Pokemon, I mean, in any sentence that I can say, he lights up and he pays attention because that's his language. So I'm a big advocate of passion-based learning. And I think that best finds its expression in homeschooling just because you have maximum freedom. But you can certainly do it whether your kids go to a private school, public school, it just requires the parents to be a little bit more intentional and not just deferring and delegating to someone else to educate their kids. Which is strangely hard for the average parent. I say strangely because I grew up homeschooled. So my frame of reference around what is a normal level of interest for a parent to take and a normal level level of liberty for a parent to take around their kid's education is a little skewed mm. as a default. But the amount of fear that parents have around doing something different is enormous. And I'm sure you thought about that as you were writing this book, like even knowing that all of these atrocities are happening in the education system. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to call them that. We're, you know, it's still the status quo. It's still the safe thing. It's still the socially acceptable thing. And there's still such resistance Mm -hmm to pulling your kids out of that and doing something different. It's better to, it's, it's, it's much safer to fail as a group than it is to even succeed alone and have to explain yourself to people. Yep. And a lot of parents really second guess their ability to deliver an education tailored to their kids. They question their own expertise and qualifications, which are words I kind of hate in this conversation, but that's how they think about it. Yeah. And this is something like I talk to parents all the time about this, but I'm very curious how you address that in the conversations you have. So uh, as I mentioned, I'm going to go speak at a homeschool conference and I, I that's a big part of my public speaking. And over the years as I've done it, I've noticed a trend uh, in an- direct answer to your question. And that is, uh, it's usually the moms who are you know doing the education mm-hmm. and... Um, and they burn out so quickly because I think they have the wrong frame of mind when it comes to homeschooling. These, these parents, most homeschooling parents, um, or even just parents whose kids go to school, but then they're doing educational stuff at home as well. They see themselves as having to be the knower of all the things. I have to be the biology teacher. I have to be the English. Oh, I was no good at writing in school. How am I going to teach my kids? They're going to fall behind because I'm inadequate. And of course, most parents are the product of the public fool system as well. Um, and so therefore they did receive an inadequate education and then they feel that they cannot be that person to provide all the knowledge to the kid. And so what I tell, when I talk to parents, I say, you don't have to be the knower of all the things. You just have to be good at Googling. 
You just have to be good at finding the resources when your kids want it. When your kids are curious about something or when they have a question, rather than looking up the question and then telling them the answer, instead, let them model your behavior of how you go find information when you're curious. Let them see that you're a student still, not a teacher, right? Homeschooling parents should never be the teacher. They should be a companion student alongside their child so that the kids can see that you're a perpetual learner, that it never ends, that we always are learning just in time for when we need the information in contrast to the just-in-case model of school where it's like, oh, you know, you need to know the quadratic equation 40 years from now, so let's cram it in your head now just in case. Uh, We need the just-in-time model. It's how humans operate. My refrigerator breaks and just in time, I go watch a YouTube video and I figure out how to do it. We need to model that behavior for our kids. And and that's where I see homeschooling parents, especially the moms, kind of like relaxing the shoulders. I don't need to know everything. I don't need to be amazing at everything. I just need to help my kids find the resources that will best empower them. And anybody can do that because everybody's good at Googling. Which I get such pushback to on Twitter. I imagine you do as well. I get teachers in my replies Mm -hmm. and in my DMs who are furious that I would suggest that it's possible to deliver an adequate education via Google which is a ridiculous argument in and of itself. But people call me irresponsible for shilling such nonsense yep. and say, well, why, why on earth would you ever ask an expert if you could just Google it? You know, what a, what a ridiculous thought that we would have experts now, which, you know. And yet when you go to the doctor's <laughs> office, half the time they're Googling things because you have some malady or some specific thing that they have to go you know, figure out, let alone chat GPT and AI and all the things that we're going to be dealing now uh, with in the education landscape. Of course, teachers are going to get defensive, right? They've, they've kind of built themselves up in an environment in which they have to justify their existence, which is becoming, and, and especially with AI, is going to become increasingly hard uh, to do. Teachers, I, I, I think they have a great heart. I think, I mean, most of them, some of them are just propagandists and activists, but I think most teachers sign up because they want to help kids and they love teaching and they love inspiring kids. And I think that's very laudable. Um, I think we just need to rescue as many of those sincere teachers from the government school system and send them down alternative teaching paths um, so that like John Taylor Gatto, who you you know know when he quit, right, in his op-ed in the 80s, he said, I'm, uh, I'm hurting kids more than I'm helping them. And so if anyone knows of a profession where I can help kids without hurting them, please let me know. You quit after teaching for 30 years in the public school system. Yeah, which is an amazing level of, of humility that he had to acknowledge that and, and name it because it really is a system that's designed to, like it's setting itself up to fail with its incentive structures sure. around like no one, of course, of course, teachers are incentivized to say that school is important because mm-hmm. it's their it's their livelihood. Right. And, and and also it's what they know. Like they've only most of them have only ever been in the system. Sure. They went through it as students and immediately reentered as teachers. They never had anything else. Real world experience. So it's like taxi drivers. Oh, you you need me. I know this city better than those crazy Uber drivers. I offer more security and we're bonded and licensed and you you need me, right? And so they have to justify their existence, especially in the face of, of significant competition. Now we're seeing so many states passing ESA laws, school choice laws. We're going to see a lot of kids kind of leaving the system, especially as those flourish. Um, so I, I think I think the system is right to be worried. Frankly, I think it's long overdue that the system needs to face a little competitive heat. They've taken for granted the monopoly that they've had for a very long time. And so, I mean, competition improves everything, decreases prices, increases quality. That's exactly what our schools need, especially for the 
vast majority of kids who are going to continue going to government school. The best thing that we can do for them, since their parents are not going to rescue them from that system uh, by pulling them out, is to have so much competitive pressure on the school system that they improve things for the benefit of all the kids that stay behind. Spoken like such a capitalist and libertarian. <laughs> Very much so. I have, I have my badge right here. That you can see. Oh, yes. I see you've got the card. I wondered. <laughs> um, are there, besides homeschooling and besides Acton, which you chose for your own kids, are there other either models that currently exist or innovations that you see occurring in education at large that you're particularly excited about? Well, uh, I'll stick with homeschooling for a second. One of the best things in the past five to eight years, roughly, has been the um, the proliferation of homeschool co-ops. Because in traditional homeschooling, or, or I should say an impediment towards traditional homeschooling is mom usually feeling like, oh, I have to do all the things and we're going to be alone and my kids aren't going to get the social environment and all the things. And so uh, we were part for a decade of, of a co-op and it was fantastic because all the families would pool resources and I would teach classes for the teenagers on like uh, writing, persuasive uh, writing, uh, public speaking. I did a class once on uh, the world's worst enemies of like, you know, Marx and Mao and Hitler and kind of going through it like. You know, you don't get that in the government school system or some mom that was a biology major. She can teach a little science class for the kids. And so it keeps the prices low. It, you know, provides the social environment. Um, the moms have a support group, which is a huge thing so that they don't have burnout. They can lean on one another. Uh, so so I'm uh, really bullish on co-ops because they are everywhere now, especially post-COVID. Um, and so I think that is among the reasons why homeschooling has tripled post-COVID. And, um, and I think ultimately that's the model, especially for younger kids. I, I frankly think that that's kind of the utopian ideal is. And, and why is that? I think it's because then the parents are invested. I mean, I, I don't think there's any education model in which parents are more invested than when you're homeschooling. And as any teacher in a public school will tell you, the best thing that you can have for the educa education of a child is an engaged parent. Um, and, and so I, I feel like, like for me as a freedom guy working on changing all these laws and stuff, like I see a lot of problems in our country and I don't think that we're going to save our country at the Capitol. I don't think we're going to save our country in the courtroom. I think we, if we're going to save our country, it's at the dinner table because so many of the problems that we see in our society are a downstream product of the, the systemic breakdown of our social institutions and churches and family and so forth people having climate anxiety, not wanting to have kids anymore and all this kind of stuff. Well, that creates all these secondary and tertiary effects. So for me, homeschooling is an ideal precisely because I think it develops and fosters more family unity by keeping that family together. Yes, you have your social opportunities, co-ops or whatever. Um, and granted, not everyone can do that. I get it, um, which is why it's an ideal. Other than that, like there's services like Prenda where you can do it like in school or you can do it at home and they have an at-home model. And, and so I think there's opportunities with online learning and some other stuff to kind of have a hybrid where maybe there's some in-class time and then your kids are at home for part of the time. Um, I'm a big proponent of, of Acton Academy, just the Socratic method in general, which is why I, I gravitated there with my kids. I mentioned uh, Alpha School, which is really exciting and they're going to be growing here uh, pretty soon. Uh, Joe told me they're trying to go for 100 uh, campuses, 100 schools, which is super exciting. Um, and I, I think fundamental, like micro schools are, are the other big thing. Um, we've been working on this in Utah uh, recently that there's so many, and, and I guess Acton Academy and others, they're micro schools too, but there's so many others where teachers are like, wait, you can, I can quit my teaching job. I can teach half as many kids. I can 
avoid all the bureaucracy, set my own rules, set my own time and be able to do what I initially signed up to do, which is teach and inspire kids. Like, and so you have all these teachers who are leaving the school system and being entrepreneurial and starting up their own little, you know, uh, I guess they were called pandemic pods before. And I don't know what we call them now other than micro schools. Um, but I'm also a believer that like, if you build it, they will come. So I think with all these ESAs that are passing in different states and providing funding models for a lot of parents to be able to exit the system and take their tax dollars with them, I think uh, I'm excited in, in particular, especially since we're at the early stages of this, that I think we're going to see a lot more education entrepreneurship in the next five or, or 10 years. Even take Joe, who has this alpha school, costs a lot of money. It's very kind of niche and focused. Well, now he's talking about, we were just talking before your uh, podcast here, he wants to open schools that uh, cater to like 2,000 kids at a time and and uh, the tuition cost would be at par with what they would be able to get from the state, but far superior than what the state is providing. So I think the more we unlock the funds, we're going to see a lot more of a marketplace flourish, which I'm I'm excited about. Yeah, the I think there's a, I suspect there's going to be an adoption lag for parents with the ESAs. I'm curious to hear your take on this because I feel like a lot of parents even in states where their ESAs have passed, like Arizona, I think there are a lot of people who don't. It's not just that the money is not there. It's that parents really don't feel like they know how to choose a school mm -hmm. either or like how to make an informed decision about what is best for their kid. Like you're very passionate about this. Sure. You spend a lot of time thinking about it. I'm very passionate about this. I don't even have kids yet and I spend a ton of time <laughs> thinking about this. But not everybody is. That's right. How do you, I, do you get a lot of questions from parents who feel like they kind of are jiving with what you're saying, but they don't really know what to do with it? We already saw that during COVID. I think a lot of us who are in the education space where when the lockdowns happened and all the kids were sent home from school and suddenly everyone's a homeschooler, a lot of parents were reaching out to, who do I know who homeschools? Who can I talk to? My wife did like an info session in our backyard with like dozens of people in the neighborhood. Like, That's amazing. Here's how to homeschool, <laughs> you know, here's what you should do. And uh, and so um, so for our organization, Libertas, we, we became the fourth state to get an ESA pass just uh, a couple months ago. And we've identified this as one of the, the core drivers of the success of the ESA. And that is holding the hands of parents who would be interested, but for the fact that they don't know how to get through all the steps. And so having a, a kind of community outreach aspect, having an FAQ website, uh, doing little webinars, just creating content that provides them with the knowledge and the confidence that they need to then make that step and do something different. They just need someone there who they feel like they can turn to when they have questions. So we're actually trying to set up an organization uh, designed specifically to do that so that we can then help more parents exit the system. Amazing. Um, I want to talk, you, you just mentioned that you were involved in the passing of the ESAs in Utah, which is fantastic. Uh, you also, if I understand correctly, you were super involved in like freeing up some of the homeschool laws in Utah when you first started homeschooling yeah. your kids. Is that right? Yeah. Tell me about this. I mean, more on paper than anything. So in Utah, uh, several states, the homeschooling laws, they're fairly restrictive. You have to teach certain standards. You have to have uh, tests and so forth. On, in Utah, that existed on paper, but no one was enforcing it. So you had kind of this black market of homeschooling where people were just doing whatever they wanted, but feeling super guilty that they were breaking the law. Yeah, and then you were super had, nervous that somebody was going to catch right, them and take their kids DCFS away. DCFS or something, you know? Yeah. Whereas you had others who were kind of the good rule followers that were doing that and uh, unnecessarily. 
So basically what we did years ago was uh, we just repealed the whole thing and nice. said like, this is silly. No one's enforcing it. And parental rights and Utah is obviously a pretty red state. So we had a lot of sympathy and support. And so now in Utah, as in a few other states, all you do is you sign an affidavit to the state and say, my kids are no longer yours. See you later. And there's no uh, requirements. There's no nothing. It's just wild, wild west. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, that's, that's been fun. And it's not like before parents were being criminalized or you know, anything bad was happening. But for me, I, I wanted to have Utah be one of the top states just as a, a beacon, like an example to other states to say, look at our education outcomes and look at whatever social metrics that you want to see how our homeschooling law has not caused any problems. Therefore, hey, all you other states that have all these silly, you know, restrictions, maybe let go a little bit. This might be a tough question to answer because the the laws vary so much from state to state. But if there are parents, because I talk to parents a lot who will reach out and they'll want to know, like, where should I move to if I really want to mm. homeschool my kids? Or like, what are the most friendly states for homeschooling? But if somebody's hearing you talk about this and they're like, you know, it would, sure would be cool if my home state was a little friendlier towards this. Yeah. Is there somewhere that you would direct them to to start or think, questions you'd direct them to answer or things that you'd recommend they do? Yeah, absolutely. So first is HSLDA, Homeschool Legal Defense Association. They've got a website where you can look up, you know, all your state uh, policies to really understand what is actually there. So if you don't know, I would say go there. It's a good resource. When you're ready to fight for doing something different, I would encourage your listeners to go to spn.org. That stands for State Policy Network. So what that is, is a national association of think tanks like Libertas who work at a state level. So if you live in, you know, Tennessee or Michigan or whatever, you can find the group working in your backyard and go approach them and say, hey, have you guys worked on this before? Can I help? I'd love to share my story. I'd love to do something about it. And those groups are best positioned within kind of the right right of center, uh, pro-family context to help you change the law. Amazing. Um, so you mentioned earlier that, yes, the laws are important, obviously, from a practical standpoint, like whether or not you're able to homeschool your kids is a really big deal. But at the same time, like the big change isn't going to come from top down governmental changes is going to happen on a family by family basis, which I'm very inclined to agree with you on. How do you think about, especially in the realm of education, I know you think about this much more broadly because you have your hands on all sorts of different things, but especially with education, how do you think about where to direct your energy as someone who has a very clear vision for the world that you want to be living in and the world you want to be promoting, at least it seems that you do have a vision that you're you're striving towards. You're putting a lot of energy into the politics side of things, but you're also putting your energy into supporting parents, making change themselves, like starting from the bottom up with this book, Mediocrity, but also the Tuttle Twin series and some of the other stuff that you're doing. How do you think both on a broad scale, like where the important things lie, but also as you're dividing your time and energy, how are yeah. you thinking about that? Such a good question. And I'm smiling over here because I get asked this a lot. Like, how do you prioritize time? And, you know, just this morning in a meeting, someone's because I've written, this is my 40th book. That's incredible. And, and yeah, it's like, how do you, do you sleep? And, you know, this is the question I get. Mm, uh, sort of. I get the most. <laughs> And uh, well, I, I tell them, actually, I have no other hobbies. This is my hobby. All of this, it's my work. It's my passion. It's my <laughs> hobby. So I dedicate all my non-family time to this. Um, in, in reality, um, I, I believe in the approach of like throwing mud against the wall and see what sticks. Okay. And, and what I mean by that is like, I want to 
do everything. And, and, and that, of course, creates complication with, uh, but I'm like, if Elon Musk can do everything, then why can't I? But, um, <laughs> Fair but, question. But, but what, it, what it really means is um, to enable me to have my hands in, in a lot of different things, I need to build teams and systems that can automate and delegate a lot of the managerial, you know, logistical kind of stuff so that I can you know, spend half an hour here and then jump over here for two hours and then take a call over here doing something else. And so I, I have a great team that has been able to uh, take off a lot of that workload so that I can kind of bounce around and focus on where I feel that I need to because I'm, I'm like, you know, freedom guy plus ADHD. It's like, oh, that's a bad law. Let's go fight it. Oh, hey, here's a tweet, you know, that I need to go do. And and I want to be able to kind of be nimble and and uh, I don't know, pursue opportunities as they arise and not be kind of so stuck down in a particular system. By no means am I perfect at this at all. It's always a work in progress. Frankly, I feel like um, it's like the plate spinning thing where you've got like one on your toes and it's getting wobbly. So you have to go give it some attention and then you got one on your finger. And so it's it's really just, I've got a lot going on and I pay attention to what gets wobbly and then I go jump in and try and keep its momentum going and it makes things interesting. <laughs> but from a like tactical standpoint, oh, if you sure, have, sure. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. How, how do you think I'm about glad, the split? I'm glad you followed up with that. So I'll, I'll be very frank with you. You know, I've got my policy hat where we're changing laws and stuff. And that's how I started um, with that story 15 years ago. And so that's kind of my background. Um, but there are days where I feel like quitting that entirely because I have seen no greater, greater way to change people's hearts and minds than to help parents help their kids. Consider this example. Let's uh, take, I don't know, The Road to Serfdom by F.A. Hayek, classic free market book, understanding kind of how the world works. And a uh, great book, but written decades ago with multiple syllables in each word and <laughs> no pictures. And so if you ask, you know, mom or dad on the street, hey, well, you should read this book. It's really like, w would even 1% actually, you know, read the book? I don't think so. Uh, by contrast, if you say, oh, hey, do you think it'd be important for your kids to learn about, you know, economics or or civics or entrepreneurship? And, you know, 95% plus, if not 100%, will say, yeah, I want that for my kids. I want them. So the barrier comes down and through uh, through the parent, we can not only teach the child, but what we're finding is well over half of the parents who read our Tuttle Twins books, for example, are learning new things that they never learned this stuff in school themselves. And so what we're doing, like we used to call these children's books, now we call them, fa I, I mean, it's not what I officially call them, but I often refer to them as family educational resources because we're, we're reaching kids of all ages, we're reaching their parents, we're really trying to just spark discussions. Again, because I feel like uh, it's the dinner table where we can most affect social change. Um, I could pass any law I want. Take Michigan. I mean, I was uh, meeting this morning with my, uh, the CEO from the Michigan think tank up there and they got the right to work law passed a few years ago to fight the unions and, and you know, allow these people to not be forced into these unions. Well, just earlier this week, the, the uh, Michigan governor signed into law a repeal of that right to work law and now the unions are back in full force. So any law we change can get undone. Uh, there has to be something more long-term and uh, I feel like where our, our, you know, movement, if you will, has had a big failure is that we've always tried to go persuade adults. We've, we've tried to do voter education. It's very costly in time and money to change the mind of an adult. When was the last time, you know, we as adults like significantly changed our minds? It's rare, right? Your mindset is, is formed at an earlier age, your worldview. 
Um, and, and so I think we've been playing defense as a result of, uh, of always trying to wait to go after the adults. Whereas if we can focus on the rising generation, as uh, my ideological opponents have long been doing for decades, um, we can affect far more change. And so I, I feel like, you know, where my heart is, it's more in that kind of long-term investment in cultural change. And, uh, but again, mud against the wall, see what sticks. I feel like the legal is necessary as well. So I'm not going to quit and I'm not going to stop, but I do feel like ultimately the education and helping parents improve things for their kids is how we rebuild the social fabric in our society to make long-term systemic change. So I think you, I think you're exactly correct which I think is pretty obvious if anyone digs into the work that I'm doing at all. I think I make it pretty clear that I don't care a lot about policy besides what it's like. There are other people, yourself included, who are doing fantastic work sure. on that front. I'm much more like I want to help the actual parents figure out on an individual level how to support their kids, yeah. how to work with their kids. Um, but I also I find it very interesting. A lot of people seem kind of apathetic towards education. Especially okay. if they don't have kids of their own yet. Okay. Yeah. Like I find it, it's kind of unusual in my age range to be particularly interested. Like I'm in my mid 20s, don't have kids yet. Right. Kind of unusual with among my peers that I meet. Like I hang with a, a crowd that's fairly like, you know, they're fairly libertarian, conservative. Like they want to homeschool their dozen kids, all of them. Like they, they're, they're kind of on board, sure. but it's not a pressing issue sure. to them. And even their level of interest is an outlier thing. Mm. And I feel like a lot of people, like, yeah, education's important, but like current events and foreign policy feels more, a little more pressing and also sure. a little sexier. Like I feel like people, there's sort of this just like, yeah, education's just kind of, it's on the list of things that are important, but it's not that high on the list, which I, I feel like is a gross misprioritization because education is the beginning of everything. Yeah. And it's also like the other side is, like you said, really focused on education and for a good reason. Yeah. Because it's the kids who don't have their minds fully formed yet who are like they're impressionable. For sure. <laughs> and, and there's a reason why parents care so much about what their kids are learning in school and at home because it makes a difference. But I find it very interesting that I don't know you. I don't. Maybe you disagree with me that there's a mis misalignment in people's incentives here. But I feel like people don't care enough about education. And I'm curious both what your experience with that is and also your response to it. I, I wonder if we can be kind of compassionate to people in that circumstance. At least my my theory might be that like look, they just suffered through 15 years of that institution. <laughs> the last thing they want to do is think about that anymore, right? Like out of sight, out of mind, let me, you know, have some freedom and move on. And so I, I wonder if there's something like that. Um, but, but I think it's also different strokes for different folks, people who don't have kids, I, I agree, aren't as invested. Where I try and shift people's attention when I have conversations like this is I usually use an analogy that's like, look, uh, imagine we're in a big orchard, we're gardeners, and we're tending to these trees. And the these old trees, these fruit trees, they're decaying, they're knotted, they're, they're diseased. We're uh, trying to heat bucket loads of fertilizer onto these trees to restore them to good health. We, we have a lot invested in these trees. We want them to be healthy, bear good fruit. That's awesome. We, we should do that. We should save the old trees. But any good gardener worth his or her salt is also focused on the seeds and saplings, making sure that they avoid the same kind of, you know, diseased state as the older. And that's where I think we have had uh, a critical failure 
uh, for those of us who believe in freedom, broadly speaking, is that we've been fertilizing old trees and we haven't been focused on the young. So to your friends and to my friends in that age bracket, I would say, I agree with you that current events is pressing, it's urgent, it's it's very hyper-relevant to the now, um, but it's a symptom, it's an outgrowth, and we're just going to keep being distracted by all these daily crises that emerge if we don't fix the systemic problem. It's Henry David Thoreau. For every thousand hacking at the branches, there's one striking at the root. I'm sick of hacking at branches, you know? Like I did that the first decade of my professional life doing this stuff, uh, you know, tweaking here and passing a law there. And like, I have limited time on, on this earth and uh, I want a legacy, I want impact, I want to help people's lives, um, impact people's lives. And, uh, and so I got to go for the root. And to me, education is, is the root. It's, it's, uh, I, 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 yeah, I I could, I could go on. (laughs) It is the root and we need to strike it. We could stay here for a while. I'm sure we both have a lot to say about it, but from a, uh, like if education is the root and, and culture is the root. Yeah. And it starts with the families besides educating kids on these more like conservative, libertarian economic ideals with the Tuttle Twins books. What are the other biggest both things that you want to empower parents to feel competent doing or facilitating with their kids? But also like what are the biggest cultural shifts that you feel like need to happen on a family level to see the change that you want to see? That's a big question. I like it. Um, I I feel like, well, the, there was actually a poll that came out. You probably saw this a few weeks ago. I don't remember the, the name of the group behind it. They, it was a really big poll and they prioritized like 57 reasons why uh, parents prioritize K through 12. And so they were asked to kind of rank all the different priorities by a way of example. An interesting one was uh, college and career readiness, which, you know, is a common core term that was bashed into everyone's minds throughout that process. Parents, uh, adults taking this survey ranked it like 47th out of 57, so very low priority. What was at the top? It was uh, practical skills, number one. Number two, critical thinking. Uh, When you look at that, my takeaway is parents ultimately don't care about academics. They know their kids will figure it out. They they know that most of the stuff their kids are going to learn is irrelevant to their life because that's the lived experience of the parents who went to college and got a degree in philosophy and now they're, you know, working at the local factory and or being a welder or something and making six figures. You know, that they, they understand that there's that gap between academics uh, in this artificial school sense and the real world in the future, which is why I think a lot of them prioritize these higher order things. I want them to be a functional, literate, intelligently thinking individual. Um, And so for me, what I'm thinking through with Tuttle Twins, but beyond it as well, is how can you optimize for that? How can we best help parents to uh, instill, for example, critical thinking with their kids? I think one of the challenges is we have to help the parents develop critical thinking as well and make sure that they can model good behavior uh, for for their children. And so that's one of the things that um, I'm kind of thinking through what that looks like and how we can optimize for that, create product services to facilitate that. The other thing that I'm, I'm excited about that I think is maybe tangential uh, to this question, but I see it as kind of a bullseye, is uh, uh, we have this program called the Children's Entrepreneur Market. And uh, this started five or six years ago because we got Utah to be the first state in the country to pass a law protecting youth entrepreneurship. 
so kids don't have to get a business license, a food handler's permit. You've seen these stories of like little kids' lemonade stands getting shut down in the land of the free, <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous. So we went to our legislature, we're like, guys, you know, so now that there's no taxes, there's no nothing. If you're under the age of 18, it is a literal free market. It's frankly economic anarchy, and I love it. So we got that law passed six years ago, and so we launched this program called the Children's Entrepreneur Market. And um, and it's basically like a farmer's market, but run entirely by the kids. So mom and dad can help set up, but the kids are counting money, they're hustling, they're haggling, you know. And, and uh, so we've done that for a number of years. This year, we are expanding to six new states with the goal of taking it nationally within the next five years. So why do I mention this in response to your question? I think that the profit motive is one of the best teachers you can have out there. When little kids are earning money, suddenly they're learning, you know, uh, persuasive speaking, uh, customer service, business management, product development, marketing. You know, when when you get these kids uh, earning a bit of money, all this learning, it's no longer academic. It's no longer drudgery and worksheets and curriculum. It's, holy crap, I now know what, you know, I want to do that again. I want to earn a bunch of money. I need to go learn all these things. And it's a means to an end because they have a clearly defined end. So I see this market program that we're doing as we need to refine it and, and we'll keep growing it. But I, I see its potential as uh, using the market experience as a catalyst for these kids to develop problem-solving skills, critical thinking skills, um, customer service, and all the rest that comes with it. And so I think that's something that every every parent helps their kids set up a lemonade stand. It's just a natural part of Americana. And so I want to kind of piggyback on that with that market program and say, this isn't just about, oh, yay, my kid made some money. It's like the, there's so much depth that can come in here um, because the more entrepreneurial that a person can be, I think the more independent-minded they become. Frankly, the more libertarian they become, the more self-sufficient. And so I think entrepreneurship is a good language with which to teach a bunch of other uh, skills that are going to benefit that kid and make sure that they thrive in the future. And also promote retention of information, too. Because sure. when you're just memorizing things, you talk about this some in your book, like when you're just memorizing things that nobody really cares, when you have a context for it, you care very much. Right. When you're calculating, how can I make, you know, like 5% more profit on my next my next lemonade stand venture next month? You're going to care very much about That's how right. the math works. And also you're, you're going to be incentivized to learn more, which is one of the things... One of my favorite parts of the book was the chapter, I forget the title of it, but the chapter where you talk about the uh, eighth grade test standards in the mm -hmm. 1800s in Kansas and, and then the early 1900s in Kentucky yeah. and how they're asking very complex but very contextual math questions. It's not just that they're more complicated mm -hmm. than the questions that kids are being asked now, but it's far more practically interesting to calculate that the kids are doing a lot of it was business math questions. Sure. It wasn't just how many watermelons can Stacy fit in her car. It was like, <laughs> how can you calculate the interest on a loan that's being paid off over this time period, which is actually something kids were going to need to know how to do to go right. start becoming a part of the family business or managing the family farm or starting their own thing as teenagers, which in a lot of ways, I know we really, as a culture, we have this sort of like, collective grief around the generations of people that missed out on having a higher education because they had to go work the family farm when they were in eighth grade. Like my grandpa, I remember hearing him talk about this when I was growing up about mm. how his dad made him quit school when he was in eighth grade and he always mourned yeah. missing out on higher education. But in some, like there were elements of this that were also correct. Sure. Where you were learning things that were preparing you for the real world and then 
you're older, as you're moving towards adulthood, you're also learning, like you're learning more in the real world. And when done correctly, that can be a very enriching experience where you've learned all of these things that are important to know to be successful in the real world. But then you're starting your own business when you're a teenager and you're like learning higher math as it relates to running your business, not just as a bunch of abstract theories and formulas that you're memorizing and you know how to spit out onto a piece of paper, but you don't really know what you what they mean or why they're interesting or why you're supposed to know it. And so I think I'm a huge proponent of of entrepreneurship for kids Mm -hmm. because it contextualizes everything that you're learning for the real world, like you just described, but it also kids remember more. Like I remember, I don't remember a lot of my, the math that I learned in school because I didn't like math and it was boring and I didn't care. But I absolutely remember learning how to bookkeep when I started my first business when I was 12. And I remember every, every detail of that because it was exciting to me. And it wasn't math. It was, it was fulfilling the broader goal and purpose that you had. That, that to me is the great crime of so much of our education. It's very siloed. It's inauthentic. It's today we're going to learn about, you know, uh, you know, post-participle subjunctive of the English language. It's like, who cares about that? Like, why do I need to know that that is even a thing, right? I just need to know how to communicate well. And uh, I don't need to know what all the names are. I just, like for me, for example, I hated English and I, I, I did very poorly in writing. Funny story, after I had written about a dozen books, my mom was back home in San Diego where I grew up and bumped into my eighth grade English teacher. And, you know, pleasantries, blah, blah, blah. And then she asks about me, hey, how's Connor doing? And when your eighth grade English teacher remembers your name all those years later, it's either because you were a really good student or a really not that good student. And for me, it was the latter. And so my mom's like, oh, he's written a dozen books. And she was like, you know, like, how, <laughs> how is this possible? Does not compute. And, and so I struggled in English in school. And, um, and it wasn't until after college uh, which I didn't need to go to and, and wish I didn't in retrospect. But after college, when I finally was discovering my passions and, and so forth, one of the things that I started doing, this was 2006 and seven, was blogging, which was kind of blowing up at the time. And, uh, and it was fun. It was a good outlet. But then people started reading it. And then I was like, oh, crap, I suck at writing. And, and it, it was this like natural inducement where in the span, I think of like three months, I 10x'd my writing ability you know, in such an accelerated fashion, then I spent years of drudgery going through English in school. Like, like a kid who wants to, you know, sees Elon Musk and, uh, you know, uh, SpaceX and rockets and stuff, right? That kid, if that kid develops an interest in, in let's say, rockets and, and science, will learn in the span of just a few weeks more than years of science class and math and physics than, uh, because it doesn't have context. And, and so, I think context has to precede content. And the problem that we see in the schools is that it's content without context. Once you have context for why something matters to you, like you said earlier, the retention is through the roof because it matters to you of how you, you know, balance your budget, make sure that your little 12-year-old business can can work well. So it's stuck with you all these years later that you remember that. It's because the context was there. That's the glue that really, I think, retains the content. Otherwise, it's just in one ear, out the other. It's pump and dump, uh, you know, put all this in your head, regurgitate it, move on. Uh, that, that to me is where the school system is lacking is in context. 
So this is a total tangential point, but I was thinking about this today. So I have to share. I'm, I was reading your book and I also at the same time was listening to the audiobook of Atlas Shrugged, which I've read before, but I was, my friend was listening to the audiobook. I was like, you know, that actually sounds like a really fun way to refresh on this book that I love. Yeah. They're, they're eerily similar. Like I feel like either one can kind of work as a metaphor for the other. That's funny. Um, in that like in Atlas Shrugged, it's all about, you know, that like everything's just sort of crumbling, but everyone's pretending that it's fine. Sure. Like everyone's, it's like, well, the experts say this and well, the board says that, so it must all be okay. And meanwhile, everything's just like slowly yeah. spiraling into the dust. And there's this weird deferral of, of responsibility and accountability. And it's like, well, like we have to get everyone's consensus on this. And then if everyone says it's okay, then it must be okay. So we're going to do it. And we don't really care how it's actually turning out. Mm. And a lot of the phenomena that you describe in your book are very similar in that there's, you know, like our our test scores and our academic outcomes are slowly spiraling into the dust. Yeah. And but we have this like group consensus where, well, you know, the the the, the education, the, the, the teachers unions and the Department of Education say this is what we're supposed to be doing. So we're going to do more of that. And it must be fine. Like everyone's deferring responsibility onto right. the collective instead of taking individual responsibility. And when you take individual responsibility, you can deliver incredible outcomes for your kids like homeschooling parents are and yeah. like, you know, parents who have their school, their kids in micro schools and act in academies. And I just thought the, the parallel was so striking That's, and reading them at the same time. I had I don't know if you've gotten that before, if you were no. aware of this. There's even I forget what it was. There's something you said in the book where it's even like using a turn of phrase that they use in Atlas Shrugged. Oh, I was like, is that on purpose? No, no. <laughs> it just must be ingrained from all my uh, Ayn Rand reading in earlier years. So you'll have to tell me later if you remember that part. I'll have to look. I'll put it in the show notes. To, too. <laughs> to me, it reminds me right now when we're recording this, the past few weeks has had all this bank uh, turmoil and so forth. And what have you seen? You've seen Janet Yellen, you've seen uh, Biden, you've seen uh, central bankers throughout Europe and others saying, the banks are fine. Everything is sound. They're coming out on Sundays now and saying that, you know, because they're worried about Monday morning and bank runs and so forth. No one believes them. Everyone sees through it. Like we all know that the fact that they're telling us that the banking system is fine and that our economy is doing fine is precisely because it's not. And so to your point that you bring it up, I feel like we've been told for a long time, the school system is fine. Everything's okay. Kids will turn out fine. I turned out fine. This is, to your point, consensus. This is what the experts have said. And so I think we should apply the same skepticism to those people saying that about the education system today than we do these, you know, bankers and uh, politicians about our economy because it's it's I think it's the same problem is that they're claiming things that simply are not true. They're saying things are fine. I look around at our society and how much apathy and ignorance and uh, that there is, and I am disgusted. And I feel like that is the byproduct of decades of this modern experiment in government schooling, and it gets an F in my book. Yeah, I think that's a. <laughs> I almost think that's a generous. Yeah. <laughs> it needs, Is there we need something to add lower? Some, <laughs> we need to F add some. Minus. Yeah. <laughs> Graded on a curve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I I agree with you completely. And I also think that I'm shocked. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you couldn't tell. Uh, but also like all of the like everything is there that parents need to exit the system quite gracefully and deliver a 
far superior education for their kids. It's the the tools are there on the internet, like everything you could ever need to know to educate your kids is for available sure. for free. It really, it seems to me like it's mostly, it's it's kind of a courage thing. It is. Like it's, it's the biggest, the biggest piece that's missing is parents feeling like they're ready and able to to take the leap. I would also add to courage, I would say sacrifice. Because yes. especially where a lot of families, because of our economic circumstances, the mom feels like she needs to go work or she wants to go work. And so, oh, do I need to stay home now and do this? And Or how do we kind of manage? Can you ro- remote work on these days? And, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I think sacrifice is another thing. But, but to me, uh, I like to flip that question. I say, okay, it's con- there's trade-offs with everything. And so it's like, it's convenient for you to just send your kid to school. But what are you sacrificing by doing that? Are you sacrificing your family bond? Are you sacrificing their financial future? Are you sacrificing uh, their kind of ideological fidelity to the values that you hold? Or you send them off to be brainwashed into some like, you know, crazy Marxist uh, experiment. So there's trade-offs all around. I think a lot of people just have blinders on and think that everything will be okay. And the point of the book in part is to say like, things aren't okay and it's not the school system from two generations ago. Things are kind of bad right now and we should have eyes wide open about it. Yeah, and even if nothing else, you're sacrificing your kid's ability to have a really phenomenal childhood, which in and of itself, like that's that's an amazing thing for them to carry with them through a lifetime is the, yeah. the memories of having time to play. Sure. And having time to build a business and experiment with things and follow their passions and know what those passions are and know what they're interested in beyond just what they're being told to do or what their peers are pressuring them into doing and liking at school. Like even that, even if you don't think about any other future outcomes, that alone is a very compelling reason, at least in my mind. I like what you're saying and I agree with it. I I think the individual context is important for every particular child. How are they doing? How are they thriving? Yeah. I think we also need to think through this in the aggregate context. Like how do we, how do we form and fashion society? And, and, you know, how can we educate the rising generation in a way that will produce the most successful and safe society that will uh, avoid a lot of these kind of social contagions and problems that are happening? And the question that I have in my mind is, does this modern uh, school experiment Uh, Is it conducive to producing civically engaged, independently minded, entrepreneurial type of, you know, the the grade A of our society that we want kids to aspire to? Uh, Well, no, I don't think anyone would say that the school system is conducive towards those ends. And so... Um, so I, I think about it also kind of with my think tank hat on, like, you know, how, how can we do this in the aggregate? What systems do we need that can produce the best outcomes, not just for the individuals, which is ultimately what matters most, but like, man, our society now is, is the byproduct of waves of high school seniors and college seniors coming out into the real world with all of their ignorance and, and bias and stupidity that's been drilled into their heads. And is that, helpful towards our society to go in the right direction? I don't think it is. This is a very big sweeping question. So I don't necessarily expect you to have an answer to this, but I think this is a fun speculative note for us to close on. Yeah. Um, If you, assuming that you got every family in America sold on the idea of exposing their kids to the Tuttle Twins books, the types of ideas in the Tuttle Twins books. I don't know if every family in America is or isn't your objective, but like, we'll just imagine that you you succeeded in that. Okay. And you've gotten every parent in America to be like on board with the ideas that you're talking about in, in mediocrity around 
the education of their kids and how to think about a successful education for their kids or taking it in their own hands. If you could affect one more, you could add a third cultural shift that you would make. What would be, is it, because there, there's so many other things in pop culture that are really off that we don't have time to go into here, but I'm sure we would have a fun exploration of those too. But what, like, if you could hit one more that you think is like the the, the real problem, what would it be? Wow. Well, I don't know if uh, you'll expect this answer, but uh, to me, the answer is to abolish the Federal Reserve. <laughs> <laughs> Not I have, where I thought you were going. I have a reason for this. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> not really education related, except that it is. So, uh, a book that I highly recommend is called The Bitcoin Standard. And I recommend it uh, as an economic text because the first half of the book has nothing to do with Bitcoin. It's all about understanding money. And, and what is money? Money is is a social lubricant. If, if you and I want to have an interaction uh, an economic interaction to trade or do something, money is just that lubricant to allow you to get what you want, me to get what I I'll want. I'll pay you 50 bucks if you come on my podcast. <laughs> exactly. Oh, okay. There's a remuneration here. I, I didn't, didn't know, know I had to that. do that, but okay. <laughs> and so it's just, it's a, it's a lubricant to help society function. Uh, what's fascinating about this book in the Bitcoin Standard is he goes through the history of money is he's talking about how societies with hard money, in other words, it's hard to reproduce and counterfeit and produce more of, uh, are stronger, healthier societies. And he's, you know, he lists full uh, tons of examples. And we're familiar with modern hyperinflation and, you know, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, United States of America and, uh, and, and other countries. But the point that I'm driving at is this. What I uh, was most impressed uh, in the book by was this portion where he talks about the impact on the family. Um, and, and kids, parents and kids. And here's uh, his, the author's name is Saifedean Amos. He's an Austrian economist. And, um, and what he pointed out was that when you have soft money, in other words, the politicians can just print money all day long and, uh, and, and water down the money supply. The problem that creates is it creates a very short time preference. If I know that all my money is going to be worth less in the future, I'm incentivized to spend it now. And as a result, what he documents in the book is that over decades of people making short time preference decisions, they're not thinking about their children and their grandchildren. And so when you look at societies with hard money, with sound money, they're incentivized to have a longer time preference and think about the future. How do I retain this wealth? This is, this is a store of value and I can benefit my posterity, build a legacy, have an impact. Uh, whereas today with a short time preference, you know, uh, we're not taking care of our elderly, um, you know, the, the, we're kind of abandoning them. The, uh, parents aren't kind of saving for their kids and grandkids to kind of give them a leg up because the parents are hand to mouth and paycheck to paycheck. So it was a very eye-opening thing to me that ultimately the Federal Reserve and being able to manipulate money like they do, it's not just this economic issue in the abstract that just lives over here and we grumble about that Snickers bars cost three times more today than they used to when I was a kid. And I literally grumbled about that a couple of weeks ago at the grocery <laughs> store. I was complaining when I, I was totally like old man yells at cloud. I was like, <laughs> I remember working at Target as a 15 year old and I could buy a Snickers bar with tw uh, with a quarter. It was 24 cents. And now they're like a dollar twenty nine. Uh, but it, it, it's more than just that economic uh, financial aspect Money, because it's a social lubricant, it is how society uh, operates. And when you corrupt the money, you corrupt the society. 
And so much of the, I mean, think of, you know, moms who used to primarily be in the home and help support the family, you know, now they're incentivized because the finances of the family are, are more made more difficult by weak money. Now they're incentivized to go work, which means we're letting the government babysit our kids in these schools. And then that has downstream impacts. So as I look not only from that book, but many others from the Mises Institute and other organizations that have written a lot about this, I feel like um, money is the root of all of the state's evil when they can print it, when they can corrupt it. And uh, for me, as I think about parents and kids, what will have the greatest social change? I think we need hard money. Um, I think, you know, whether it's the gold standard, Bitcoin, you know, whatever, we need harder money because the government being able to manipulate families like this without them even realizing it, just these kind of like downstream effects. Um, again, we can hack at the branches all day long. I can give you other answers about, oh, I think, you know, whatever. Like, I think this is another route that we need to, to strike um, that would have a lot of impact were we to su succeed. That is a phenomenal answer. We could go down this rabbit hole for another hour easily. <laughs> Round two, I have so many next thoughts. Edition. Yes, we'll we'll have to we'll have to table this for now. Connor, if people enjoyed this interview, and I'm certain they did, where would you send them to learn? Where where's the next best place? Would you send them to Libertas, your Twitter, your website, where? Just Besides, Google Connor Boyack. The book. Yeah, Mediocrities <laughs> on Amazon. You can go get it there. Uh, you can find me at connorboyack.com or just Google my name. You'll find all kinds of stuff, both good and bad. Uh, but adventurous nonetheless. Uh, and then if you're interested in Tuttle Twins, it's just tuttletwins.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much for fitting Thanks, me Anna. into your busy this schedule. This was great. This no, I fun. enjoyed it. Awesome.